Asian migrants, one of the most common ways of supporting yourself and your family is through opening a shop of some sort. Fish and chip shops, bakeries, takeaways, restaurants. These are highly commonplace across New Zealand and they are quite often owned and operated by Asian migrants. A lot of the time, they do this their entire lives, tirelessly feeding the communities around them. But they're often small, family-operated businesses, so it's endlessly hard work and you really get a day off, which is why a lot of people also want to move on from that lifestyle. For my guest today, his parents' shop, Satay Noodle House, has been an integral part of his life since he was a child, and now he runs it as his own. Bun shares with me the backstory to how Satay Noodle House was established, why he took it over, and why he doesn't necessarily want to branch the business out beyond his community in South Auckland. Thank you so much for coming all the way into town for this podcast. Thanks for having Bun. me. Like, Thanks for finally, after the third time of rescheduling third time and all lucky. the lockdowns. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Tell me how lockdown has been for you. Um, I love lockdowns. Um, <laughs> and not a huge social people person. Oh, I love being by myself. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, business-wise, in, in terms of what I do day in, day out, um, Level 3 is just amazing for us. Yeah, and I don't, I don't mind the, the less interaction with friends and fam. Uh, I, can, I can get by. I mean, it's not forever. But those weeks or three days whenever we do have a lockdown, um, yeah, I really thrive and I'm really in my element. Because, yeah, I do love being by myself and being in my own space. Yeah, well, because you're, <laughs> you're in hospo, yes. essentially, so it must have hit you quite hard. Yes, it is it is definitely harder to make your dollars, I think, in the hospo industry, um, especially if your main source is, you know, dining customers. For us, we get about 50-50, so I just pushed our dine-ins to be all um, takeaways. And yeah, we've really just found a formula or found a way to make it work. So we never live with three rolls around. We just, our team's just like, yeah, cool, like we're on. Like It must be like clockwork now, right? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but we really enjoy it. We uh, To put into context, we um, so we open shorter. Yeah, we'll, we'll churn out the same, if not more, meals than what we do on a normal day. Business-wise, is just really good. So I get more time for myself during the day, more open, shorter, and still, money-wise, we'll still, you know, do about the same. So it's great. That's really good to hear. Was it quite hectic, like, the first time that you had to do all that? Yes. I think heading into Level 3 was from that first lockdown, Level 4. And um, I'm not a tech-savvy person, but I, I spent about at least 100 hours just building a website to be able to, you know, get those orders in. And that was really sore on the back. But yeah, it took a lot of work to get ready for that. Yeah. Did you suffer much loss? And uh, for the level four, yes. For that four or five weeks, yep, definitely. And then you never knew what to expect going into level three. So it was a lot of uncertainty. But I think there was a massive, you know, shop local, uh, support small business initiative. So that really helped in that first. It was unreal times that that first level three. Um, it was just crazy. It was like a movie. Yeah, all of last year was like a movie, really. Yeah. <laughs> so surreal, right? It's kind Definitely. of hard like, to you believe. Kind of pinch, you're just like, man, are we seriously like, even in lockdown, you're just like people lining up, masks. You're just like, man, this is like a real life movie that we're living in. Just to clarify, so you own and run Satay Noodle House in Papakura. Tell me how that whole thing came about. Um, so, okay, family business. Um, it opened in 2000, so 20... 
uh, 21 years ago. Mum and dad opened it. So growing up in a family business, yeah, just typical Asian, you know, just you're, you're there every day after school, you're there in the weekends, um, you grow up in it. I was, I must have been 10 or 11 at the time when it opened. So yeah, intermediate high school, you're just there pretty much nearly every day. I think I was on drinks the, you know, the first few years. Um, then you start taking orders, then you start cooking. Wait, so, yeah, so you were 10 years old when you started doing that? Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't Is see that... over the counter. Yeah, I'd be like, hi. And um, yeah, people are like, oh, who's, who's taking my order? And like, my head's just above. Um, but I think that, that kind of adds into the story now that I've taken over. Um, so I took over 2011, so 10 years ago, but it was me and my dad um, doing it together. Dad finally retired in 2000, May 2017. So since then... I've been able to make it my own and um, since then it's been, yeah, kind of like freedom and yeah, it's been amazing since then. But yeah, so it's been cool to, for customers that have been coming since 2000, you know, cause we've been, fr- we've grown like a 20 year friendship relationship and um, you know, they remember me, you know, under the counter versus now when, yeah, I'm like running the show. So it's really That's cool. That's awesome. Can yeah. you take me back to the very beginning? So how your parents started it and why and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, lots of reasons. I think the catalyst of it was we did a family trip to, so I'm Cambodian and we did a family trip to Cambodia. So once we, long story, long story short, uh, they got out of the wars in Cambodia, Khmer Rouge, um, escaped. Dad, dad is one of six, one of six or seven. And it was, he's the oldest out of all his siblings. And he brought his family to New Zealand and then the rest have grown up in Boston, America. So all his other siblings are there. And then we did a family trip where we met up with, so my aunties, his sisters, and he was like one of the poorest, you could say, like his sisters were shouting and stuff like that. And he just didn't have the fun. And I don't know, I guess there was a lot of pride for him. He was like, man, I'm the oldest and well, how are they doing better than me? And like, I can't even afford to like pay for meals and stuff like that. So I need to do something now. So he came back and he was just came back like motivated and he was like, nah, I need to, cause I think they were doing their own businesses in Boston. And so he was like, nah, like, you know, he, I think that mum and dad were working two jobs, um, at the time just to, you know, just to get by and just to provide, uh, some sort of kind of future for us. But, um, maybe that was the wake up call and he was 50. He, you know, he was a, he was pretty, he was an old dude, um, still coming back and wanting to start a business. Like you're not really thinking of starting a business at 50. So especially like a hospital thing where you need to be there seven days, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. So it was a big ballsy call and um, yeah, he did his research and I think that's how it came about. That's really interesting because usually with migrants who come over here and they set up shops or takeaway shops or whatever, they tend to do it when they first arrive. Like it's mm. a thing that they do to try and support their families. Yeah. Dad's, or what he says, because he shifts blame. No, <laughs> he won't listen to what's right. <laughs> <laughs> but he's like, oh, I wanted to do it ages ago, but mum, mum didn't want to do it. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's true. You know, maybe they, he did want to do one earlier, but yeah, I guess that was kind of the, um, the wake up call, I guess, is that, hey, my younger siblings are like doing better than me. So I need to do something for myself. Hmm. Yeah. Do they ever talk about the experience of having to leave Cambodia during that time? I try to, it's weird. I, I don't think they, they really do, but if we pick at them, then they kind of open up. But maybe it's because it's trauma. You kind of put it behind you because it's like, it's something that 
I've been super interested in as I've been telling those stories over the last kind of two, three years. But it's not something you hear like at the dinner table growing up or anything like that. Or it's more being told to you in a way that's like you're lazy. What we did in <laughs> Cambodia is like this, this and that. Yeah. So like you need to be more like this, this and that. But it's not like a telling you it's more like a leverage to get you to do something yeah yeah it's interesting eh? because our parents have all these really interesting experiences but (laughs) they never talk about it it's like trying to draw blood from a stone sometimes definitely we've actually got mum on a um what do you call them like the little tape recorder ones we should just do it on a phone these days Mm. but this was about 10 five ten years ago and we're just getting to like Start from, you know, day one and just tell all your stories. Cause I think those would be just, you know, amazing. So just look back on, yeah, memoirs and stuff like that. But yeah, like when we get into the groove, like I, I've had a few conversations with dad where, you know, you just build momentum and then they just, they just go. And I forgot it in, you know, a bunch of them, but <laughs> those should really be documented somewhere, I think. Um, cause that's so. I just love looking back on it for, even for me, but then I'm sure in generations to come, those those stories just be really rich to, to look back on. Yeah, especially because they're so connected to such a significant part of history as well. Mm. I went to Cambodia a couple of years ago and obviously did all the touristy things with like the genocide and everything. And I bought this massive book and I was just reading about all the political history behind how it came to be. Yeah. And it's just crazy that that happened. Mm. I still. So recent too. So recent. Yeah. 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 I always think, because I'm every, I guess every birthday. So I'm 32 now and I always think, man, what was dad doing at my age? You know, he's literally like dodging bombs and, um, yeah, I think he's right in the middle of it right now, um, 1975-ish. He would be 32, like 30, around 30 years old. So I'm just like, man, that's like my life. It's, it always adds perspective to my life, I think, and it gets me through tough times or when I, whenever I'm feeling stressed or anxious or whatever. I'm just like, man, there's nothing, you know? Mm, like, yeah. yeah, exactly. So were mm. you born here? Yes. And so have you always maintained quite a close connection with your Cambodian heritage? I think I went there for the first time when I was about nine or 10. From that first trip, I realized like, oh, uh, we got it. Like, this is different. Like, these people live way different than um, than what we've got back home. Since then, I, I think I've gone back, yeah, probably six, seven times. And as an adult, I guess I go back every two or three years. Yeah. And do you speak your language? Um, broken. Mm. Very broken. But enough, I would say, to, to get us around. Yeah. Mm, cool. Yeah. Okay. So going back to your parents opening the shop. Yeah. Tell me more about how they grew it. So Sata Noodle House is actually, it's not a franchise, but there are other branches. We got it from our sister who married the guy who had one in South Dunedin. So yeah, my dad got it from, from her husband. Um, so that's how we got the initial like recipes and stuff like that. Because it was going to, he was working in a bakery before that. So it was either going to be a bakery or a noodle house. And so, yeah, he ended up going Noodle House. I think bakery is really hard work, um, but not that Noodle House isn't. <laughs> so, yeah, In a different with, way, right? Yes. So he went with that. And how did they grow it? I think um, in, in a real micro sense, um, me and my, I remember me and my sister at the start, we were chucking out menus to like, we did this massive walk. We were just chucking out menus to every household um, in Papakura. And that's probably what got us. That, that's before, obviously, social. Yeah, it was literally like, um, what do they call that? Like direct mail. So that's, yeah, that probably helped at the start. But in terms of growing it, no, nah, it hasn't really, I think it grew naturally by about 5%. So not much every year, year on year. 
but it wasn't really growing. I, I guess you could say it just existed. It had a lot of um, regulars, and then yeah, it just grew say five maximum ten percent a year for yeah for the last or since I've had it. I guess since two thousand eleven till twenty seventeen. And so you were helping your parents run the shop all the way throughout school and high school. Yeah, like 30, 30 40 hours during, u- during a uni degree. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah nah, sorry. Like when I look back on it, and then people, like I've got staff now um, who are in high school starting uni and stuff, and they're like, oh, oh I've got exams and stuff. Like I, I got to take this shift off and shit like that. And I'm just like, man, soft. Like, nah. <laughs> like kiddies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually, yeah, there was, there was, since dad left, I actually have to really catch myself because the way that he, the way that he treated staff was a way to not keep staff. And right. so if, it was only me and him for 2011 till 2017. Wow. Yeah. Um, basically, we'd have people come and go. But yeah, it was just real dictatorship, you know, like just real like. <laughs> Strict. Yes. Yes. And micromanaging. And yeah. So I had to. And and I have elements of that because you know you become who who you spend um, who you spend the most time around. So I had to always be conscious of it and and just catch myself when I'm doing the same when I'm um, growing a team and stuff like that. Because yeah, it's not it's not the best way, um, but sometimes it's just your it's your instinct. Um, Did you have much of a childhood then, or a, a life outside of school? And not not really, work? to be honest. I reckon it was pretty sheltered. But I guess that was that was just life, and um, yeah, like I didn't really go out much. It wasn't until like I didn't start drinking till about nineteen, till till like second year uni, is when I started. When a lot of the people around me were like going to parties from like you know year eleven, twelve, thirteen. Um, you're drinking from like you know, or you're dabbling in it at like fifteen, sixteen, and I just never till about nineteen. And I think that's why I'm still like still love a still love a binge. <laughs> I started like. <laughs> <laughs> in your early 30s hanging with all the twin year olds <laughs> oh mate yeah totally i think that's why i love um employing young people because like we just yeah <laughs> so bad but yeah we just have um push-ups uh for like staff parties and stuff yeah do you feel like you missed out on a lot of a normal childhood you could say that but i i've never felt fomo or i've never felt like regrets or or anything like that but yeah you could say you could say that because, yeah, I didn't really do much, to be honest, until about uni days. Um, but even then, you know, I worked every Saturday. I think Saturday was my day. So from about intermediate through to, you could even say now. Yeah, I've done every Saturday through high school to uni. I just, yeah, I just, Saturday was like my day. But that's actually kind of, I actually like like that. Like, it's actually pretty cool that I can um, point back to that. Like, I never look at it again like, oh, man, I wish I didn't do that. I just know that I can, you know, I could work every hour if I needed to. Like, I've got a stomach for it, I guess. So you went to uni. Mm. What did you study at uni? Uh, sport and recreation, majored in management. So you wanted to be like a fitness um, They told me in high school, they told me, do what you enjoy. So I loved PE. PE was my best subject. It was <laughs> God, the I easiest subject. <laughs> really? Yeah, it just it was so easy, and so I was just my sister. The next one up, there's an eight, eight, nine year um, age gap between me and the next sibling, um, but she did a sport and rec degree too. And um, yeah, it's just the subject that I enjoyed. I didn't really think about how it's gonna. You're not really thinking, or I speak for myself. You're not really thinking about twenties, thirties, forties. They just said do what you enjoy. So yeah, I did PE. But if I could do that again, I probably wouldn't do PE. 
Mm, what yeah. would you do instead? Um, probably something like finance um, or business or something like that. It's weird though because it goes it goes against the morals or the the principles that I'm that I kind of preach or, or talk about. You know, about doing stuff that you love. Uh, so I'm a bit of a hypocrite in that sense. But yeah, I just feel like it would make me more rounded or just have better knowledge of like basic economics and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's you speaking with hindsight, right? Like Definitely. doing what you're doing now. Yeah. Knowing what what skills and knowledge areas you might need a bit more, you know, education mm. in maybe. True. Do you know from your parents' perspective, did they expect you to carry on the shop? No. Yeah. Um, nah. It was never my plan to take over until I graduated. I was heading into, so I did that sport and rec degree and most people are either PTs or they're um, secondary school teachers. And I was heading into secondary school teaching. I was going to do the extra year. But then as I, when I was graduating during that um, time, my sister came to me and was like, hey, what do you think about taking over the shop? Because dad was at that time, yeah, approaching around 65. So he was at that age to retire. And uh, my sister was like, man, we could do so much with the shop. You know, it's got a lot of potential. What do you say? I was like, yep, we should do it. Like, that'd be cool. And then last minute, she actually pulled out. So it ended up being just me taking over. And then it probably meant dad worked for a bit longer than he maybe would have liked. But he never he never said. Do you remember how they felt when you when it became clear that you would be taking over? I think... Not that we've ever had that conversation, but I think that they would have been happy that it continued, not knowing who would have done it. But um, yeah, since it was me, yeah, I think they're happy that it's still that it's still going. And for you, why did you want to take over the shop as opposed to pursuing your fitness degree? Um, that's a great question. I don't even think I've thought about it. Um, it's just something you did. Yeah. It really, it really was. And I guess heading into secondary teaching or taking over the shop, I, I believe in the potential that it had, I guess. And now, what are we, 10 years later, yeah, I'm glad that I went that direction because um, it's just cool for the legacy and, and, and the story um, that it's still going, you know, and people, again, like back to just growing up with the people around me um or customers and stuff like that it's just cool that we can look back on you know five years ago 10 years ago 15 20 years ago yeah it's just that longevity thing is just is really cool do you have a vision for the future no just (laughs) just keep it going yeah no i really i actually don't um (laughs) yeah i i don't have like a big five-year vision or or 10-year vision or, or anything like that in terms of the business i really just deal with the micro you know like this is what i want to do and i and i want to do this every day and then i feel like the big picture takes care of itself but i just want to look after people every day i want to make people happy every day um i want to give where i can if i do that enough times you know day in day out i just feel like yeah everything that we've built everything where we find ourselves now in the last kind of three years is a result of just doing those little things each day but it was never like a if even when i if i was to set a vision when dad retired, um, we've far exceeded, you know, if we're just talking from a business sense, like a, a numbers sense, um, we're exceeded where I would ever think that we, we could get. Do you think you'll ever get tired of it? Because it's quite yes. hard work. Yeah. I actually just had a bad week because everyone thinks in business, like you got to scale, um, like you always got to grow and stuff like that. And it's funny, like two days ago, 
Um, it's just been a, as the team grows, you know, like you, you get not expectations and I've never actually felt like this. It's really just been two days ago where I thought, man, I look back at like two, three years ago when it was only two, three, four of us and how much easier it was to manage that small team and how in terms of a happiness sense, like I'm no happier now than what I was um, back then, even though we're, we're doing maybe double than what we're doing back then. So it's clear that like more revenue isn't making me happier or any, or any stuff like that. So I'm like, man, I wonder if I could just strip it back and like mm. go backwards. <laughs> um, for me, I just want to be in control of my own uh, freedom, I guess. So whenever I feel like, hey, I need an extra day off or, or I need more money or whatever it is, I just want to be um, in control of my life to a point where I can put those pieces in place to get whatever it is I need. Because I think balance changes all the time. So for me, it's just all about balance. And um, yeah, if I get tired of it, I don't think I'll get tired of the day in, day out, the actual hospital itself. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. I feel like there might be something else though that might like a different passion or something, which might, I might, you know, head in that direction. But I don't think I would get tired. Like I think if, if I, if this was me for the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, um, it doesn't scare me. Nice. Yeah. Can you tell me how, Papakura has changed in the time that you've been there because I am fairly familiar with areas because I used to work mm. in the area too. Oh, right. But you've obviously been there much, much longer. Mm. And I feel like it's an area that's kind of destined for more change. Yes. I think it has um, so much potential. I liken it to, sorry about the sound. Um, I liken it to Onihanga. Like I feel like it can become like kind of like an Onihanga, which is like a mix of um, like as gen gentrifying but yeah you got a mix of you know because right now papakura is just like food like fish and chip shops and like two dollar shops like that's pretty much the gist of it but it has a lot of potential and it's just it has grown a lot but it's also lost a lot of businesses that do add something in in papakura so like i think back in the days was like hannah's bond and bond you know like good um established businesses that have that have left the Westpac, a few shops down from us, have moved. So dad was always like, man, when banks start moving, you know, it's like, it's going to get dangerous. Oh, no. Yeah, like when banks start, oh, man, then it's like, it's not a good sign. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I've grown up in South Auckland my whole life. So you can probably tell by the way I speak and stuff like that. And, you know, just how I carry myself. But it's, it's, it's home. And people have always asked me as we've grown last few years, like, hey, we're going to open up Central. We are customers from, you know, central, from out west, from North Shore, um, east. And they're just like, man, we ain't going to, you know, branch out and stuff like that. And I'm just like, man, I don't want to deal with the headaches. And two, like, it just wouldn't feel right. But I'm not saying, you know, I never say never. But, yeah, just it's just home and um, interacting with those characters. And and South Auckland is just so, is so much more me. I would say, yeah. So you grew up in Papakura? Um, Manurewa. Okay. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you growing up? Especially Um, as like an Asian kid. Yeah. So I went to many Asians there. I went to um, Lebank Primary, then Manurewa Intermediate, then James Cook High School. Dad always said, get some big friends to look (laughs) after you and stuff like that. So, you know, I did. And and yeah, I was was taken care of. But now I was always the... um, I was always like the little Asian kid that was just cheeky, always just talk shit. And, um, yeah, but never, never really had a fight, not like a fight fight, but 
Yeah, it was just always cheeky, but always fast. Like, just ran away. What are your own perceptions, being a South Aucklander, of how it's portrayed versus what it's actually like? It's been heavy in the media lately, eh? And um, it's funny because during level three, I'm going to go on a tangent. Um, <laughs> it's fine. Go during level it. three, um, we've done features on the project and stuff like that. And so one of the producers uh, reached, or journalists for them reached out, called me and was like, hey, they're talking about the South Auckland thing. And um, I don't consume much media or anything like that. So I really just do not know. Like I honestly live in my bubble and I just go to work and I do my thing and come home. Like I really don't watch news or any, I don't consume much outside of that. And so, uh, yeah, I guess there's like a negative connotation with South Auckland or, or something about Papatoi being blamed for the last outbreak or, or something like that. But I guess, you know, if you're outside of South Auckland, like my friends who aren't from South Auckland, they come to my shop and they're like, bro, like how, um, how f- close should I park? Like, is it going to, is my car going to be all right? Do you want to walk me? Do, <laughs> do I have to walk there by myself? Do you know how like crazy this sounds, though? Like, yeah, yeah. Don't you find it crazy that people <laughs> yeah. think it's so dangerous that they can't walk, like, It's funny because, like, I take them serious. Like, I'm not even like, <laughs> oh, shut up. Like, I actually, you know, I'm just, I don't know, I'm just empathetic. I'm just like, okay, like, yeah, if you don't feel safe, yeah, I'll cut. Like, it's all right. Like, it's, like whatever. Because you're not from this world, I guess. So, uh, it's all right. Um, but it is crazy. But, again, like, uh, it's just comfort. It's just home for me. And so. it's totally fine. Like, yeah. I, I do feel like with these touch perceptions wood. of people. Yes. Yeah, touch wood. Um, but <laughs> I, I do feel like with these perceptions of, like, South Auckland, for example, like, it's such a, like, how do I explain? Like, a single perception. Mm. Like, it's high crime, high poverty. Yeah. All that kind of stuff, but they don't really go much deeper than that. Like they don't really go into the communities and they don't realize how much of a community it can be. I feel like it's more of a community. Uh, I feel like when you have, it's going to, I don't know how this is going to come across, but when you have less, I feel like people come together more. Um, and I think about the villages in Cambodia uh, when I've gone to like dad's village and stuff like that. And they got nothing, but like everyone knows everyone. And um, you're more, I, uh, I liken it to like back in the day, like if you need to borrow something from a neighbor, like it's it's super chill. Whereas now, like if you knock on your neighbor's door and you're asking for something, like it's a bit, unless you're established with that neighbor, you know, it's a bit like, oh, what are you doing? Like this, why are you coming to my space? Mm. But yeah, I feel like it's way more of a community. So how many times have you gone back to Cambodia? Probably six or seven. And yeah, I try to go back every two or three years and like Jasmine loves it too, Mm. um, which is cool. So it means it's just, it helps us like as soon as, you know, COVID clears up and stuff, she, her first destination is Cambodia. She says like her heart's at home over there, Mm. which is really beautiful. What do you think about where Cambodia is going in the future? Because it's still developing. And I I, I got the feeling that it was still quite new to a lot of stuff. Like, obviously, with the touristy places, um, you got a lot of tourists. But outside of that, I felt like it was still quite real, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's still pretty raw. Did you go to Sienopville? On the, on the, um, it's on the beach. No, I didn't no. go, no. Um, so we went there, like, let's just say four or five years ago, and it was still raw, you know, like, it was all mm. Cambodian businesses, um, but Chinese have just taken over that, like, three, three years ago, and now it's like, um, you've been to Vietnam? Yes. Is it Da Nang? 
Yeah. Where all like those chains, hotel yeah. chains, are, like casino the, stuff the, like that. Like the beach resorts. Yeah. yeah. So now it's become that. Casino right. has become, yeah, Chinese have taken over and it's all like commercialized and stuff like that, which is a bit sad, but um, it is what it is, you know. Yeah, I, I really hope the people don't change because that's what mm. I really loved about Cambodia as well. Yeah. I felt like people were genuinely kind and excited to like see you and help you whereas if i do compare it with vietnam like no hate to vietnam i love vietnam too but the vibe was very different because they have had many more years of they're conditioned to selling and you know you're there and they're just in your face yeah and and i guess cambodia is becoming like that hopefully the whole country doesn't become like that but there are always those like little towns and so we went to like comport and guy um, which are two places that I've never been to, but they're a lot still more untouched. And yeah, you'll still find like the raw and real people. Yeah. And so we love that. It's just going to like places that are a bit more, yeah, raw, like you said. Um, because yeah, it can get a bit much just being in the city and being in places where they're just always, you know, always just being sold. And yeah. Yeah. It's a super different vibe. So. I've been house hunting in mm. Papakura, actually, and I've oh. actually driven past Sate Noodle House a couple okay. of times. Yeah. So next time I go in, <laughs> what Please should I order? Um, I'm vegetarian, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, you can get a veggie satay. That would be like the easy go-to. Um, or like a veggie pad thai. To be honest, it's something that I do need to focus on to have more veggie options. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Sounds good. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for coming over and sharing a little bit about yourself and your business and your journey. Um, I will definitely pop in next time because now that me. we've actually met and you're yeah. not going to be like, okay, who is this random yeah. person <laughs> who knows all this about me? Yes. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks as always for listening. You can follow Bun and his work on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Sate Noodle House. As always, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and follow Not Your Token Minority on social media. And don't be afraid to reach out if you or someone you know would like to have a chat about your story. Message me on social or email hello at notyourtokenminority.com.